who finds himself drowning in a bucket of cream has two choices. Drown or fight so hard he churns that cream into butter. And simply climbs out. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is episode 156 of this program. And thank you so much for joining us. If you missed the last segment, uh, Pierre Lecourf, fantastic segment. You will be able to listen to that on the archive immediately after the show. Uh, if you, it's a fantastic segment and a, a great individual as well. And we tip our hats to him and the work that he's doing up there uh, in West Aleppo. And, uh, yeah, just tremendous, tremendous. Now, um, our next guest uh, is on the other front line or was uh, just returned from the other front line in the south of Syria, uh, the highly contested Golan Heights region, uh, which is along the Israeli border uh, with Syria. Now, uh, Tom Duggan has been on the show before. He's an independent correspondent, and uh, he's really moving around the country, um, uh, much of it on his own volition. But he's able to get access, and he's managed to get access to some places where the the media, much especially the Western media, will will not go or haven't gone. Uh, but he's been there, and he's got a lot of uh, information to share with us about how things are developing down there. There's a very important part of the whole story in Syria is on the southern region along the Golan Heights, and it has been since nineteen to since the 1970s. Um, and specifically uh, with regards to Syria's relationship with Israel, this is absolutely key. So we're we're happy to be joined again by Tom Duggan. Hello, Tom. Hello, Patrick. Greetings from Damascus. Yeah, good. thanks for joining us again. Um, we we appreciate it. Um, how, how t- just give us an update on on what you've been doing recently, Tom, and how how things are going. Right, sixth of October is a big day for the Syrian people and its army. The 6th of October in 1973 is where Syria retaked part of its land in the Golan Heights area. So they celebrate it on the 6th of October every year. I was fortunate and lucky enough to be allowed to visit Golan on the 6th of October this month. Uh, we traveled through the front line along a dirt road over the mountains with al-Nusra on one side and the Syrian army on the other. It's a very dangerous, dangerous place. Um, a lot more dangerous than Castello Road in Aleppo. Uh, you have to travel at really high speed across mountainous terrain. I arrived at a village called Heda, which uh, is always under attack by al-Nusra, and I spoke to the locals. They were highly surprised as I was the first person from the West they'd seen for years and the first correspondent they'd seen for two years. I spent time in Heda, and I spoke to people 
they opened up their doors to me, invited me in for dinner, drinks, coffee. Philippine people are such a generous people, and especially when they meet foreigners. I spoke to and did an interview with a guy who run a falafel uh, takeaway. Um, falafel is hummus compressed then fried and then burned the sandwiches. And I asked him a simple question. This place gets shelled on a regular basis. Why do you stay? And his exact words to me were, you ask me why I stay. I am a son of Hedda. My mother is Syria. I stay because this land is Syria. He has lost two brothers in the conflict so far, and he'll still stay. It's a rich, rich farming land. Syrian land in that area is very volcanic ash because of the mountains. It has lots and lots of farms. Israel wants these farms. It's the best place in Syria to grow crops. Now, Israel lost a jet and a drone over that area not long ago. I wasn't fortunate enough to see the remains of the jet or the drone, but I spoke to people there who confirmed that a Israeli jet and a drone aircraft had been shot down. That's important. That, that's important because uh, Israel denied that uh, took place. They and no comment from anyone in the Western media when that was reported uh, in Syria. They just ignored it. So you're saying that people, you know, residents confirmed that that was the case. This, this is the locals. This yeah. is the locals told me that yeah. it had, that happened. So shortly after that, um, I visited a few houses. One had been hit by a rocket. I've posted the photographs on Facebook, on my page, if anybody wants to copy them and to get them out there. Um, I couldn't tell you if it's Israeli or if it's Al-Nusra because they're both the same party. So I'll explain that statement in a moment. But the, the rocket came through the roof, blew the house to pieces, and a child who was in the other side of the apartment, who was around about two, three-year-old little girl, actually jumped about three feet, four feet in the air to clear herself. That's a child, two, three-year-old. She was such shock. Um, I spoke to the father. The father said it's a regular occurrence. They're not sure if it's Israel that's firing or Al-Nusra that's firing at them because the road from Israel goes directly to Al-Nusra. There's a dirt track where they supply arms, food, ammunition, and they evacuate Al-Nusra terrorists for medical treatment in Israel. Now, Next to Hedda is a mountainous area, the Golan's are mountains. I would say one kilometer between the two military outposts, Israeli outpost and the Syrian outpost on the main mountain, standing on top of each mountain. I've got the photographs, Patrick, I'll send you them. Okay. Um, coming down from there, from the Israeli side, is captured land that is rightfully Syrian. 
there is a valley between which the locals call Shelting Valley. Because the occupation force of Israel will not allow the Syrian people held captive in the occupied areas to cross back into Syria, they have to stand on a platform and shout over the fence, rather like they did in the Berlin Wall during the Cold War, or like you see in Korea, where people meet once a while and shout across the fence to each other. Mm -hmm. There's a distance of some about 100 meters, 200 meters maximum. So I stood there. Where the platform is, there's a UN base on the Syrian side of the border. Mm -hmm. Well, al-Nusra attacked in Golan, supported by Israel, I might add, because they supplied, um, they supplied covering fire. Um, the response of the UN troops was to retreat and leave the fortification they had. In other words, they ran away. The locals confirmed that they ran away. So, the UN is not in that area. There's no UN peacekeepers there. There's about several forts. We passed them on the way. So, the back from Heder, we go back to 1973, where the battle with Israel took part on the 6th of October. The place is littered with old T-54 tanks from 1973 and broken machinery. And lots of old forts that were made by both sides, both Israel and Syria. They used bulldozers and built redoubts around their, the area, piling the, the bricks, rubble, and everything up. And then they, uh, when you walk, when you go through that, it's like going back in time because you see all these old tanks and all these old pieces of military equipment lying around. I was then taken by my military escort because you need a military escort because it's a very, very dangerous place. You have no imagine how dangerous it is, this place. Our uh, lives are so close. We went to the forward observation base right on the front line. The first journalist ever to get there, which I was very happy with. We were there five minutes, and I had to put my combat flat jacket on and helmet on instantly. We came under fire from our nursery. Around about 300 yards from the position I was at, there were seven, sorry, five, six, possibly seven woods in the background spaced out. They were crawling with Al-Nusra. From that observation post, I could see Israeli vehicles in the background, and I could see the positions of Al-Nusra. I have no doubt in my mind after speaking to the locals and after speaking to the military that Israel regularly resupplies Al-Nusra in that area, that Israel regularly takes al-Nusra's wounded and takes them off to hospital. They've already admitted that they do treat these these terrorists. And I, I can confirm that. I can tell you now that I've seen the road that goes directly back into Israel. And 
when I was there, the soldiers took me into their small dugout reinforced area. I can't speak much because I don't want to give any positions or any security things away. Sure. There was a, there was a number of soldiers there, all great guys. One was called Ali. He made us tea. He made us sandwiches. They had nothing. We had a couple of beds, a couple of um, batteries for a, a small radio, no TV, nothing. And they still made us tea. They made us sandwiches. And it was a humbling experience. They escorted us everywhere we wanted to go. They didn't refuse us access to anything. The only thing they refused access to was photographs of their positions for security reasons. Mm -hmm. And they allowed us to look through their rangefinder glasses, which we used for artillery. And I could see through them that uh, I could see Al-Nusra. Um, the camera I got couldn't see Al-Nusra in the woods, but I could see movement in the woods through their equipment. They, people I spoke to there were great young men. They had two dogs there that they used for night security. Um, one was called Sharon, and the <laughs> other one was called Obama. <laughs> right? And they were extremely vicious dogs because nighttime in that area, it's guerrilla warfare, mm -hmm. um, hit and run tactics, that type of thing. I have the greatest respect for the, the soldiers as I was with. They protected me all the way along. They stood by me. I ate with them. I drank tea with them. And I made friends with them on Facebook. And they took my photograph and they promised to come and see me when they're in Damascus. So, we are my friends, and I worry about them now, because that is not a very safe area. Do not get me wrong, the Syrian army is in full control in that area. The other thing I want to speak about, with the occupation of, the illegal occupation of Syrian land by Israel. Israeli state oil company, Gini Oil, is illegally selling off drilling rights on Syrian land to foreign companies. It's a, against the law internationally and it's against the UN constitution that they're part of. But the West turns a blind eye to it. I can not understand why. Because if this was any other country, the West would have something to say. Israel always gets away with murder. I live in Damascus. Joba is down the road from me. Other places, Jeremana, are down the road from me. To kill one Hezbollah leader, Israel mounted an attack last year and killed 90 Syrian people. Wow. 90 to kill one. That is murder in anybody's book. They sent a jet in, it attacked Hezbollah, the address where this one Hezbollah leader was, the hole in the ground 
was massive. Mm. 90 people were killed and hundreds injured. That's not legal war. But nothing is said about Israel. Israel can do what it wants. It can occupy Palestine. It can move Palestinians about. It can deny them the rights that the Palestinians have. And this is what they want to do to Syria. They want to take the fertile land, they want to take the Syrian minerals, and they want to suppress the Syrian people. I have no idea what the Syrian people suffer under the hands of Israel in the occupied land, because nobody ever gets there. Yes. Nobody ever gets there. From my position as Hadda, looking over the Shouting Valley, I could see Israeli troops and Israeli military vehicles rolling down the roads through the, the, the town on the other side. I did not see any Arab people there or Syrian people there. I did see Israeli soldiers. I did see people wearing traditional Israeli clothing with black hats and black jackets. I didn't see any Syrian Arabs there. So I don't know whether they've been pushed to one side or on the farms, but from what I could see of the village, it was all Israeli. And Israeli is quite likes to repopulate its areas with settlers, and these settlers are a law unto themselves. So I have no idea. I would love for some foreign journalists outside Syria to visit Israel and go to that place and tell the world what's going on. Well, uh, no one yeah. is. Unfortunately, uh, a journalist, a uh, so-called journalist, did. His name was Oliver North, uh, working for Fox News. Uh, he went to that area, but he didn't tell uh -huh. the world what was going on. Unfortunately, uh, he was really just promoting the idea of settlers uh, going into that area. Um, uh, and this is what the Israeli government, unfortunately, does. They push their settlers out with promises of free land and a swimming pool and a gated community and have the army there to protect them. Uh, but but what you said about um, Israel supplying Al Nusra, it it Tom, it makes sense to me because looking at the geography of that area, um, Al Nusra is is fairly isolated. They don't really have a natural supply route from anywhere else except Israel. So how could they be surviving this long fighting without the support of Israel? So what you're saying makes perfect sense looking at the geography of the area, Tom. Patrick, I've been there. It's, there's no no other way they can be resupplied. There is no no other way, and they're in, they're there in large numbers. Then it's not small units; it's large numbers, right? Um, if you go on Facebook, I'll, I'll well I'll send you, I'll send you some photographs that I haven't published yet, okay. um, and you can see the you can see the roads going off from the woods where Al-Nusra is. You can see the mountain where Al-Nusra is attacked. Uh, you can see the UN who ran away. Basically, the UN force ran away. There's, I passed three UN bases empty in that area on the way to Hedda, the, the village, and on the shooting, the shouting valley, which is next to where the, the Israeli occupied forces are. Right. Com
completely empty. And facing me was a hill, and the locals and the military told me that basically that hill is where al-Nusra attacked from the Israeli side, supported by Israel with artillery. Mm. And it makes sense. It makes total sense because there's no other way they can get supplies, ammunition, food, equipment in. It makes no sense whatsoever. And it's a beautiful area. I was picking grapes from trees as I was walking on from the vines. They're everywhere. It's a fertile land. Israel just wants to expand. And as long as Syria is in trouble the way it is with this, it's not a civil war, it's a terrorist war because the Syrian army is fighting at least 80 different countries here, not its own people. The problem you've got is Israel gets away with anything it wants to do. Human rights violations, human rights issues. It gets away with selling oil, or oil, oil patches where people can drill, right? They're selling licenses that don't belong to them. It belongs to Syria. That's illegal. I've checked it out. It's illegal under international law and UN law and occupation law. And then they're moving settlers in now. So... Israel just does what it wants, and as long as America supports Israel to a tune of an average of $40 billion a year that the American taxpayer pays to provide weaponry, to provide the necessary needs that they need for Israel to expand and to colonize Palestinian and Syrian land, then it will go on and on. Mm. And, Israel uh, needs to be held accountable to that. I see the I see a repeat, Tom. Hello? Of yeah, Tom, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I'm here now. Yeah, I I see a repeat, Tom. I've been down to the Sheba farms uh, in Lebanon uh, along the Israeli uh, sort of contested front line there, and the same thing happened. Um, Israel expanded north, occupied South Lebanon, and when it receded, it, it maintained uh, possession of the Sheba farms and land that wasn't theirs, it never was theirs, uh, and it's the most fertile, beautiful, rich uh, agricultural land in, in, in that area. That's on the other side of uh, the mountain there, um, on the Lebanon side. But it's it's a, like a repeat, Tom, of the, the exact same situation. So Israel's using al-Nusra front uh, in order to uh, to gain control of more of its own to, to annex land for itself. That's what it seems to me, Tom, what, what I'm looking at here. That's what, that's what it seems to me. I, I made a statement on Syrian TV the other day that um, Israel is using its dogs, the Mongols that are al-Nusra, because they're Chechenian, they're Pakistani, Bangladeshi, right? So I, I referred to them as Israeli dogs because they're doing all the work. The Israeli army just sits there and resupplies them. Mm. And that is totally wrong. Yeah. And we, we, you have to remember that the state of Israel was built on terrorism and the, the bombing of the, the King David Hotel in Tel Aviv. The fact that the first car bomb was invented by Israel when the British army was there. And the first suicide um, bomb, the, so, first, the first suicide bomb was also, it was a female, actually, Israeli 
um, was the first yeah. terrorist suicide bomb. That's a fact. You can go look that up. It's the woman in red, if you Google that. Woman in red suicide bomb Israel, first ever uh, in the late 1940s. So that's, that's <laughs> actually, you're correct. Yeah. There you have it. Yeah. Car bombs and suicide bombers. They invented it. The, the, the Mossad is deeply involved inside Syria. Um, I know for a fact that there's Mossad cells operating within here. We have also know for a fact that there was a, an Israeli brigadier general captured by Iraqi troops who was working alongside with al-Nusra. Right? Um, that was only um, last year, beginning of the middle of last year, right? Um, what's an Israeli brigadier general doing with al Nusra? He shouldn't be with them. Mm. It's just, just they're playing the great game, Israel. They're playing the spy game, they're playing every game they can. The Middle East belongs to the Arabs, it doesn't belong to the Israelis. It's, their, it's not their country. But that's a different issue. After I left the Golan Heights, we drove back to the Badlands, where the gap between the Syrian army and al Nusra at high speed. Um, we stopped along the way. We spoke to people at um, different buildings, different farmhouses. They kept telling us it was dangerous, the area that our loser comes in at the night time and attacks them and things like that. Um, but the strength of the Syrian people is amazing. They won't leave that area. It's their land. That guy who is the falafi salesman who sells sandwiches, made a falafi, he summed it up. It's, I was born in Syria. I'm a son of Hedda and a son of Syria. And this is my land. I'll not leave. We then came back to Damascus. I filed my stories. They went out today. Um, there's video footage of us getting shelled. I'm pasting that on Facebook tomorrow so you'll be able to see it because uh, it only went out today. And we then went to Dara, the place where all the trouble started, where the alleged children who were writing things on the wall had their fingernails ripped off, according to Western media. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember that story. Right. I've been there. I've been here four years. It's a false flag. It didn't happen. It's fake. Like everything else that Western media publish, it's fake. The white helmets are fake. They lost their chance with the Nobel Peace Prize, and that's one thing I'm really thankful for. But when I was in Dara, I met a very, very brave man. I can't mention his name for security reasons. I met the general in charge, small man, stocky in stature, but with a heart for a line. He showed me his office. Regularly hit by missiles, regularly attacked by our newsroom. He arranged for me to go with his chief of intelligence and one of his high-ranking officers to the front line in Nara. 
There I spent an entire day with the Syrian army on the front line. Um, I was in the fortifications. I spoke to each and every one of these soldiers. They came from all parts of Syria. Aleppo, Homs, Idlib, Damascus, you name it, there was someone from there. And I spoke to them at length. I broke bread with them. I drank tea with them. Their officers were fantastic. And I did some messages home with them, recording them on the camera, talking to their mothers. And I had their mothers' addresses and their wives' addresses. And over the next few weeks, I would be visiting their mothers, their wives, and their sweethearts and playing them the tapes. Some haven't seen their families for five years. Wow. Five long years. Wow. Now, when I was there, I did a speech on camera. And the speech went something like this. Um, from all parts of Syria, they are here in Dara. They are brothers. Each one of the brothers. They live together. They die together. They sleep together. They live. Something like that. We then spoke to each other. A long, long time I spoke to these guys. They were frank. They were open. They told me they are best when they fight against Al-Nusra or IS. They work best. They love each other. They respect each other. They are great. And I believe every word they told me. Every word they told me. Because these guys were like normal with me. There was no restrictions. The Syrian intelligence officers went away to talk to them. Talk to them. Talk, ask them any questions. I can't tell you exactly the position I was in because that would give away their position. But I went to a couple of loopholes and the loopholes are in the sandbags and they were very, very close to the front line. We could see movement on the other side of the buildings and it was a pretty, pretty bad place to be for them. The Syrian soldier is there seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. I'm there one day, sometimes two days. They're like my brothers. One, when I left, the whole unit I was with called me Brother Tom. And I had to fight back here. And I've got an open invitation to go back to Dallas anytime I want from the Syrian army. And that's from their general, the person in charge. So if I come across a little bit pro-Syrian army, I've lived with these guys. I've watched them in Aleppo wounded. I've watched them die in Damascus. Uh, to me, they're my friends. If that makes sense, Patrick. Yeah, it does. The, you know, the thing that's amazing, Tom, is that people don't realize, and what you just basically laid out there, is the a tremendous amount of sacrifice that the Syrian 
uh, soldiers, uh, Syrian army, this is the national army, uh, that the sacrifice they have to make, being in their own country and not being able to, to go home for four years or five years. You know, that people don't understand the tremendous internal sacrifice that the uh, citizens of that country are making to defend their country. Um, that's something that, that doesn't get reported or even mentioned. And I think you've done a great job there, Tom, of showing that that human side, that the, these are not just soldiers. They, those are the people of Syria, right? Yes, and they're not fighting for religion because the guys that, I will, that I'm with on every trip I do, I'm meeting Christian, Shia, Sunni, Drew, right? All walks of religion. It's nothing to do with religion, right? They also, it's nothing to do with the flag. It's to do with the land. It's yes. to do with their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, their children. They're fighting to keep their land safe from terrorism, from outside intervention. They're fighting for each other. It's the guy that stands next to you on the front line. I go to the front line on a regular basis, Patrick, you know this, right? Mm -hmm. I know for a fact that the guy next to me, the Syrian soldier, would put his life on the line for me. So I put my life on the line for them. In Aleppo, I had to cross the sniper area. It was a run of about half of a football pitch. I ran across there. A Syrian soldier insisted running next to me, shoulder to shoulder. He chose the side the sniper was on. It wasn't until I was halfway across that area that I realized he was using his body to shield me. So if anybody says I'm biased for the Syrian army, I'm biased because I've watched them in action. I'm biased because I've watched them wounded. In Aleppo, I watched a soldier shot in the arm. Another soldier shot my leg. I watched the soldier with his arm broken, being treated. They were standing next to me at the time. I might come across as pro-Syrian army. I don't care what people think of me. I'm here, they're not. Yeah. I'm not working for BBC. I'm not working for Fox News. I'm not working for CNN. I work independently, and I've seen for four years how the Syrian army has fought this war, and they're some of the bravest people I've ever met because they're fighting for their homeland. They're not fighting for money. They're not fighting for anything else. They're fighting to preserve their homeland and to preserve the freedom that they have. And they treat me with so much respect. You have no idea how much respect I get off the Syrian army. We don't have any respect for CNN or Fox News. <laughs> they tell me that every time. Right? Um, they get visitors. al Dean followed us around the Golan Heights. And al Dean is a good channel. They report well. The soldiers told me al Dean didn't get anywhere near as far into the front line as where I was. Which makes me happy because the soldiers support me and I support them. Yeah. Well, Do you have any questions, Patrick? <laughs> Not after that, Tom. I don't think there's, you haven't left anything on the table there. 
Um, no, well said, Tom. Well said. And and I think it's important that you are covering that side of this story because it is a side that is not getting any coverage. And so you're telling us in in the way that you do so well, Tom, um, to give us a really a visual journey. Uh, even though we're listening by audio, we're still getting a visual journey through your eyes and ears. And I can see the soldiers. I can visualize who you're describing. And I see some tremendous people there. Um, some tremendous people who are doing exactly exactly as you said, Tom, fighting for their homeland. The young lions, the young, the old young, the civil defense section, the, what we would call the reservists who operate in Damascus and operate in each country, each area, a bit like the Minutemen in the National Guard or the Territorial Army that's in Britain. They're all old. But the guys on the front line, the majority are young, young Syrians. And with the struggling that they've had over the past five years, most go into battle with two weeks training. Mm -hmm. Two weeks training. Wow. And they learn the job. They learn the job on the spot. We're going to be doing other trips fairly soon. I'm back in Aleppo soon. Um, I'd like to do a talk with you on that. when we get the chance, and I'm going into a really, really bad place. I can't tell you where, but it's surrounded, and I have to be flowing in um, my chopper. I don't want to give the game away because I don't know if there's any of the bad men out there listening to your, your radio station. All right, but um, we've got some really big plans over the next few weeks, and I'm also back on the front line this week. Um, I'll be visiting two places on the front line. So I'll send you some reports if you need them. Uh, I'm absolutely. always available to you anytime. Absolutely, Tom. Absolutely. And t- today's report is just tremendous. I can't tell you how tremendous you know what you just told us today and shared with us is uh, simply because it's the first time that I or anyone else has ever heard uh, any real reporting or news from that front line in the south and the Golan Heights. So uh, we look forward to connecting with you uh, very and, and maybe working a little bit closer in the future um, to try to get your reports out uh, to as big an audience as possible. But, Tom, we're going to we have to wrap up this segment right now. But um, I just want to say thank you so much for your work and your dedication, uh, your honesty. Uh, and just being frank uh, with with our listeners, and uh, I think it's uh, I think it's great, very refreshing uh, uh, take on events in Syria from Tom Duggan. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me to do that, and thank you for supporting us. We're one of the few people that does support us. No, well, it's our pleasure, Tom. It's our pleasure. Uh, tremendous uh, segment again. Uh, that's two so far today. But um, take care, Tom. Be safe. And we'll be in touch, okay? No problem, Patrick. Have a nice day. You too. That's Tom Duggan, ladies and gentlemen, uh, reporting from the front line, uh, and many front lines, in fact, in Syria. Uh, We're going to hear more from Tom in the coming days and weeks, uh, hopefully, as well. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to connect our next guest. Uh, She's going to give us an update and a wrap-up of the Nobel Peace Prize. We're going to talk with Vanessa Bealey in just a few minutes. You don't want to miss this segment. Uh, So we're going to catch up with uh, the goings-on and talk about the... uh, the white helmets, among other things. Stick around. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We'll be right back.